Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. As I said, we'll be in uh, 1 Kings chapter 7. Uh, we're in the section, that last section of the, the building of the temple as it, as it began in chapter 6. is in the 480th year, the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel in the months of Ziv. In the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. And we looked at the exterior of the house, the interior of the house, we, the, the inner sanctuary, what that was like, uh, Solomon's other building projects, which he accomplished in the first uh, 12 verses of chapter 7. And then we began this next section in, in chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, when uh, King Solomon sent for and brought Hiram from Tyre. He was, one of the son, he was a son of the widow of the tribe of Naphtali. And his father was a man of Tyre, a worker of bronze. He was full of wisdom and understanding and skill for making any work in bronze. And he came to King Solomon and did all his work. So uh, we saw his first accomplishment, uh, Hiram, uh, Hiram from Tyre. Uh, we saw his, his work of the two pillars, which he constructed, these enormous brazen pillars, which are quite hard for us to even uh, begin to fathom. Uh, covered in pomegranates, lilies, and, and latticework. And, you know, these, these pillars are enormous, 27 feet tall, uh, plus 6-foot uh, capitals on the top of 33-foot tall, 18-foot uh, wide, about 3 or 4 inches thick, uh, what seemed immovable. Uh, standing there at the entrance of the, in the vestibule of the temple, uh, one called Jachin, which means he is established, which took us back to Second Samuel chapter 12. This word used frequently in that promise the Lord gave through Nathan to, um, to David that he will establish uh, his house through uh, David's son. And then the other capital, the other pillar was Boaz, he is my strength. Uh, family tie through Ruth, but more importantly, I think, in Psalm 21, where David writes of the king and his strength comes from the Lord. And here these two promises, promise and power together. Uh, all of this in, in the temple, not merely just the pillars, but we've seen the connections to the garden, uh, to the tabernacle, to the promised land, to the, to the wandering in the wilderness with the two pillars standing at the gateway. Now the pillars that once moved are now stationary, standing firm. And this is really important when we start to think about the future in, in 2 Kings chapter 25, Jeremiah chapter 52. But tonight we're going to look at other aspects of what Hiram makes. And he, he makes four other things here in the rest of this chapter. A sea of cast metal, ten stands, ten basins, and then lastly pots and shovels and basins. So we'll begin first with the sea of cast metal in Verses 23 to 26. Then he made a sea of cast metal. It was round ten cubits from its brim to its brim and five cubits high. And a line of thirty cubits measured its circumference. Under its brim were gourds for ten cubits, encompassing, uh, encompassing the sea around all around it. The gourds were in two rows, cast with it when it was cast. It stood on twelve oxen. Three facing north, three facing west, three facing south, and three facing east. And the sea was set on them, and all their rear parts were inward. 
Its thickness was a handbreadth, and the brim was made from the brim of a cu- like the brim of a cup, like the flower of a lily. It held two thousand baths. Again, this enormous, uh, amazing thing. Uh, you know, you see why it's called a sea, uh, a cast metal. It is a, an enormous basin, uh, five cubits, about seven and a half cubits. Uh, tall, you know, extremely wide. Uh, it's roughly about 2,000 baths. It is about 12,000 gallons of water. Uh, not only merely the size and the scope of it, but the intricate details of it. That we're told that inlaid in this um, this basin, which would have been cast all at one time, pouring this hot uh, brazen metal together in this clay that is formed in the ground and. And in it, the, the gourds are not attached externally afterwards. They're all cast at one time. These two rows of gourds on it, these looking like the limb of a lily, uh, the, the brim of a, a flower of a lily, this enormous thing. It, it sounds, again, strange to our ears. Um, it sounds strange to our ears, I think, because we're, we're not accustomed to some of those more difficult passages in the Old Testament. Um, it stands there, this enormous basin on 12 oxen, three, three facing in each direction. Some have hinted here as a, as a scope of Solomon and, and the worship of other images and idols creeping into his practice. Um, the, the image of the golden calf kind of creeping in. Baal was often represented in some form of cow or calf, uh, bull. And so they think this is a, a time in here. I think it more connects to the 12 tribes, uh, 12 districts we'll see later in Solomon's kingdom possibly. But here you have the, the 12 tribes of Israel, the strength of the nation of Israel holding up this, this basin. But I think we come to a passage like this and we want to skip over it. We don't want to delve into it. We don't understand it um, we think, oh, what a nice, pretty basin that would be. Uh, we try and imagine how big that would be in our minds, but it's hard for us really to fathom. But here, I think this is where, uh, where the more we go through passages like this in the Old Testament, and the more we see those connections throughout all of it, the more we understand it. We're only told about what this basin is in this passage. We're not told what it does. And for us to be able to understand what it uh, what this basin is for, we need to go back to Exodus. And again, we need to be reminded that Solomon, as he's constructing this temple, he's not merely just saying, well, let's have a look at what all these other temples are around this area. How do other people worship gods? He actually goes back to the template and the template, the, the blueprints that God gave to Moses um, and off the tabernacle. And so this is a huge thing when we consider this. What we'll see is if we continue to go through First and Second Kings is things like in Second Kings chapter 16. This brazen uh, basin, this sea of cast metal, is actually something that King Ahaz takes away. He changes it. He alters it. He moves more to how cultures around worship their gods rather than the prescribed way which God had given to Moses through the law. So let's turn now to Exodus chapter 30 and understand a little bit more about what this uh, basin is about. So in Exodus chapter 30, verse 17 to 21, the Lord said to Moses, and again we, we notice that it's not again Moses coming up with this idea saying, here's 
how we think we should worship the Lord. That's exactly the golden calf incident, right? God has prescribed to them all in the pages before how he wants them to make these things that they might be able to worship him according to his law that he has prescribed. And so the people of Israel, instead of making what God has prescribed, they make a new way. They make a way through this golden calf and they bow down and worship this golden calf. And they say, this is the God that brought us out of the land of Egypt. They call this golden calf Yahweh, whereas that's not how God is prescribed in his law. It's not merely about them bowing down to this false idol. I think a large part of the golden calf incident is actually them making the golden calf. That's what is repetitive in that chapter. They made, they made, they made. So here the Lord is prescribing to Moses how he wants the tabernacle set up and what he wants in it. And therefore, when we get to Solomon, we understand that this is merely a reflection on a lot larger, grander scale. I think practically speaking, it's larger and grander because it's stationary. They aren't going to pick it up and move it every time. They need to be able to go somewhere. They're no longer moving to and fro They're stationary. This is the place where God had said in Deuteronomy chapter 12, I'm going to choose a place and you're going to worship me on this place. You're going to bring your offerings and sacrifices to me in this place. So they have more of a permanent thing. There's a difference between a house you're going to live in for the rest of your life and going camping in a tent. You don't have all the luxuries in a tent because you know you're going to pick it up and move it. You don't want to have to assemble a log cabin every time you go camping. So what we see here is this echo of this this stationary aspect. But here the Lord tells Moses what he is to do. In verse 18, You shall also make a a basin out of of bronze with a stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, with which Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and their feet. When they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water, so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet, so that they may not die. It is a statute forever to them, even to him and his offering throughout their generation, offspring throughout their generations. So again here we see this basin filled with water is symbolic of cleansing. That we see something very important in this principle here. We often think that to approach God, we need to be have an atonement, a sacrifice. But even before we make that sacrifice to God, there is a cleansing that needs to take place. That here the priest, although he's set apart, although he has all these garments still needs to cleanse himself with water. He needs to wash his hands and his feet. Now again, maybe we can think about gospel connections here just briefly. In John chapter uh, 13, the Lord gets down on his his knees. He He takes his outer garment off. He puts a towel around his waist and he hops down and he fills a basin with water. And he washes the disciples' feet. What does Peter say? Don't just wash my feet, wash my hands and my head also. Jesus' response then is, those who are clean do not need to be cleansed already. You are already clean. He knows that one of them is not in Judas. 
That's clear. But in, in John chapter 15, he repeats this, that you are clean. As Judas has now departed, he speaks to these 11 disciples that are left, and he says, you are clean. That here, even we understand that the atoning sacrifice still needs water to be washed. And we'll get to this more as we continue through these aspects. All of these are connected. But here the priest needs to wash himself even before going into the tent of meeting. He needs to wash himself even before going to the altar. He needs to wash himself on the day of atonement several times. The people who even let the goat release, release the goat need to be washed. This is how pure and holy God is. That even the, the, the dirt we claim is sin and filth. The next thing we see is ten stands in verses 27 to 37 in First Kings chapter 7. The ten stands. He also made ten stands of bronze. Each stand was four cubits long, four cubits wide, and three cubits high, which was the construction of the stands. This was the construction of the stands. They had panels, and the panels were set in the frames. And on the panels there were set, that were set on the frames were lions, oxen, and cherubim. On the frames, both above and below the lions and the oxen, there were wreaths of bevel work. Moreover, each stand had four bronze wheels and axles of bronze. And at the four corners were supports for the basin. The supports were cast in the wreaths at the side of each. Its opening was within the crown that projected upward one cubit. Its opening was round as the pedestal is made, a cubit and a half deep. In its opening there were carvings, and its panels were square, not round. And the four wheels were underneath the panels. The axles of the wheels were one piece of the stands. And the height of the wheel was a cubit and a half. The wheels were made of like a chariot wheel. Their axles, their rims, their spokes, and their hubs were all cast. There were four supports at the four corners of each stand, and the supports of one piece with the stands. And on the top of the stand, there was a round half band, band half a cubit high. And on the top of the stand, it stays, and its panels were of one piece with it. And the surfaces of the stays on its panels, he carved cherubim, lions, and palm trees, according to the space of each, with wreaths all around. After the manner, he made the ten stands. All of them were cast alike, in the same measure that the same four. Again, these... Uh, to think about the scope of these projects, here he makes ten identical stands, uh, you know, four cubits by four cubits by three cubits, six foot by six foot by about four foot high. Uh, they're quite large. They're quite large to be able to think about these stands. They're not little dollies that you push around. Again, the grandeur of this uh, and the detail in it. Um, on it, we have the image of lion and oxen, the oxen before handing up the basin. Strength and power, king and might. Uh, you have uh, the cherubim there falling down, uh, worshiping God. Again, all these aspects that we've seen before in the plants and the garden and the lilies, the oxen are somewhat new, uh, lions are somewhat new. But here all this image that we've talked about before is flowing throughout all the, the kingdom. And again, what, what is really a practical thing, a cart to be able to move these other ten basins that we'll meet, uh, we'll, we'll look at next. The, these practical things, but yet they're intricate detail of, of what it is, the, the, the hubs that are put together, all, or ca, all cast 
um, from one bit. Um, again, these are, are to withstand a large amount of durability, the movement of priests to be able to wash wherever they are. Um, again, washing is a huge part of this. Uh, the image of lion and oxen, again, strength, but also I think it gives these these patterns of things that we'll see in the book of Revelation is that you know the lo- the the lamb and the lion lying down together this image of these two uh, predator and its prey together um, but here uh, one commentator explains it this way that holy objects in the temple were useful and attractive a combination rare in the history of ritual and worship here this is exactly a great example these stands and here, they're, they're, they seem like a, a work of art. Ten of them, all identical, um, you know. But here they are, the ability to be able to move around. You have the brazen altar, that large sea, which is immovable. And then you have these other things which are more practical because even the cleansing of uh, things, to be able to cleanse things through water, wasn't merely just the priests were to wash their hands, but also other aspects were to be clean. Uh, the innards of the, the sacrifices were to be cleaned before making a sacrifice and other aspects like this. So uh, an important thing. But there, the ten stands are then connected to the ten basins. So we had the one big uh, sea of calf metal, and then here are the basins. And we see this in verse 38 and 39. He made ten basins of bronze. Each basin held 40 baths. Each basin measured four cubits. And there was a basin for each of the ten stands. And he set the stands, five on the south side of the house and five on the north side of the house. And he set the sea at the southeast corner of the house. So again, these basins, not as large as the first one that we saw, about six foot wide, about 240 gallons of water would be able to be contained within these basins. So again, they're not small compared to a basin we'd consider now, but compared to that large basin of uh, 12,000 gallons, it's quite uh, small, punitive. But as we talk about all this, we're seeing the aspects of worship which were carried out during this day. The purification and the process and, and the means in which a priest, through as a representative of the people, would be able to approach the, the, the God, the holy God. Now we'll get a lot more of these details as we go through in the book of Exodus. Again, First Kings is based on Exodus, so they're assuming that you've read Exodus and understand the pattern and pre- the process beforehand, and they're merely, they're just touching on it here. But really, the, the simple principle is that the law had this understanding that there was unclean, there was clean, and then there was holy. There was unclean, clean, and then there was holy. These levels of what it might be that that the people of God are to be holy and they're called to live a holy life, but a part of that holy living is that some people could be classified as unclean through skin diseases and other uh, sin within their life. But there's a process in which something that is unclean is to be made clean. And often a part of that was either through sacrifices and or the purification through the ritual washing. You think about that, uh, Haman the leper washing himself. Jesus going to tell the, the leper to be able to go wash yourself and then go present yourself to the priests. This is the process. Something that was unclean was made clean was through water of purification. Now this is quite uh, significant when we think about it today. 
What does then that mean when we talk about that in a New Testament perspective? Well, I think to be washed by water, obviously we have the image of, of baptism, that we are washed through baptism, the, the washing away of our sin, the washing away of repentance, our, our union to Christ in his death and his, his resurrection. But I think clearly you could turn again to many other different passages, but Ephesians chapter 5 is a great passage to be able to turn to. As, as Paul is instructing husbands to be able to love their wives, he then speaks of the gospel and what the gospel actually accomplishes. And he says that Christ loved the church that he gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So again here, we see, we often understand the, the imagery of, um, <clears throat> of the imagery of the blood making us clean, but also the image here is that not only we need the atoning sacrifice of Christ, we need the washing of Christ as well, which is found in this water imagery that we see here. You think about um, Christ and what he has done, and, and here the, the sanctifying comes through the water of the word. The sanctifying comes through a washing, that we are united to Christ in his burial and, and baptism. And I think that's quite an important thing. And This is exactly what Jesus teaches Nicodemus in chapter 3. And he tells him, Nicodemus, he says, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit... He cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, it's not then saying that you, you can have an atoning sacrifice of Jesus and not the washing of Jesus. They're not two separate things. Your union to Jesus ties you to all of his works of righteousness, including his baptism, his cleansing. He goes and, and goes into his baptism of repentance as our mediator, as the one bearing our sins. He goes into the grave bearing our sins, that atoning work. And so too we must be washed by Christ. That, that, sac- that water of the washing by the word. Again, this is what Jesus said in John chapter 15 to the disciples, the, the 11 disciples Judas had left. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. You're clean because of the pronouncement that Christ has said. That feet washing, that imagery again of washing, not just with blood, but with water as well. Water through the word, the spirit. And the fourth thing that Hiram makes is pot shovels and basins. We see this at the end in chapter in verse 40, and then a summary of what he accomplished here. Hiram also made pots and shovels and basins. So Hiram finished all the work that he did for the king of Solomon on the house of the Lord. The two pillars, the two bowls, the capitals on the top of the pillars, and the two lattice works to cover up the bowls of the capitals that were on the top of the pillars. And the 400 pomegranates on the two lattice work, two rows of pomegranates on each lattice work, a cover of the two bowls of the capitals that were on the capitals, and ten stands, and ten basins, and on the stand, and the one sea and the twelve oxen underneath the sea. So here, not merely does he make all these basins of grandeur, he also we also find out that he's, he's there making small things of pots and shovels and basins. Now, it, 
it seemed quite a foolish thing. Why would you include this? But I think it shows the practicality of the nature here. There's a real working temple that they would sacrifice animals daily. Uh, they would need to clean up after themselves, burnt offerings, build ash that would need to be taken, um, taken care of. There's a practical aspect of this temple and its working, not all merely just for show. But here, even just the outer rooms of the temple, those rooms which are, you know, stacked because there's no entrance into the, um, the temple itself. But those, those were mainly used for storage, understood to be able to store all these extra things. But you have these holy pots and holy shovels. Now, so in all of this, we see these ties and shadows to Christ to come. Now, one aspect that is missing in this passage in 1 Kings is there's no mention of an altar whatsoever. Now, I don't think we can read too much into this. I think it merely just is, there is a mention of it in, in the next chapter. But in Second Chronicles, we, we find out about this altar of bronze, 20 cubits long and 20 cubits wide, 10 cubits high, which is made for those burnt offerings. But we do find out about it. It's not that it's hidden out of the author of First Kings. It's just not mentioned in this list. But First Kings chapter 8, Verse 64, the same day the king consecrated the middle of the court that was before the house of the Lord, and he offered burnt offering and the grain offering and the fat pieces of the peace offerings because the bronze altar that was before the Lord was too small to receive the burnt offering and the grain offering and the fat pieces of the peace offerings. So here we are, we get this idea and understanding that the bronze altar was there. It's just that there is no record of that. So I think it's quite dangerous then to be able to jump to conclusions and why there is an absent peace there. But here we have all these, this summary of what we've gone through, the, the pillars in the previous verses, and then here the pot shovels, basins, and all the vessels of the house of the Lord, which Hiram made for King Solomon, were of burnished bronze. In the plain of the Jordan, he, the king cast them in the clay ground between Sakluth and Zeradon. And the, Solomon left the vessels unweighed because there were so many of them. The weight of the bronze was not ascertained. I mean, just to think of the quantity of this over the seven-year period that probably Hiram was there casting all of these things with a crew under, working with him. But to be able to weigh all these things, to be able to get all those, those calves together that were holding up the altar and then try and weigh them and then weigh, weigh the basin and then weigh the pillars, uh, I think it's just a... It just an uh, inability to be able to do it. And I think that just shows the sky, size and the scope of what this really did. Um, the quality of what he went through, the, the ability of how he went through it. Um, and uh, just a, an amazing feat. Um, but here are all little shadows pointing to Christ. We also see the golden items in 48 and 50. And that is, Solomon made the, all the vessels were in the house of the Lord, the golden altar, the golden table of bread and presents, the lampstands of pure gold, the five on the south side, the five on the north, before the inner sanctuary, the flowers, the lamps, the tongs of gold, the cups, snuffers, basins, dishes of incense, for incense, the fire pans of pure gold, and the sockets of gold, the doors in the innermost part of the house, the most holy place, and for the doors in the nave of the temple. So, I mean... Again, just you could spend time going through each of these all in, in various detail. Um, here I think you, you see the, the distinction now between, again, what we're reminded, the, the holy place there. And the holy place is where things are holy. 
the Holy of Holies and the holy place inside the temple. All things are gold, covered in gold. Outside you go with, with brazen things, things that are unclean, been made clean before they even enter into the Holy of Holies, this progression that needs to be able to go through. We'll go through a lot of these things when we get to them in the end of Exodus. And I think I'm going to take uh, the author of Hebrews' uh, flow of thought here. But he explains there that in the first covenant, the regulations for worship, the earthly place of holiness, for the tent was prepared, the first section, which were the lampstands and the bread of the table, the bread of presence. It was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was the second section called the most holy place. Having a golden altar of incense, the ark of the covenant, covenant, uh, covered on all sides with gold, and with uh, which was the golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tables of the covenant. All it were not the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. All these things we cannot now speak in detail. And that's my uh, philosophy tonight. We can't speak of these things in detail now. So we'll have to wait to be able to go through all those and how they're shadows of Christ when we get to them in the book of Exodus. But here we are, we're at the end. We started in chapter 6 with the, the building of the Temple of Solomon. And uh, he begins to build the house. And then in verse 51, we see the close of this, where uh, the author writes, Thus all the work that the King Solomon did in the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought the things that David his father had dedicated, the silver and gold and the vessels, and stored them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. So here, the building of this enormous, great, grand temple with quantities of gold, brazen objects that cannot be measured, stones of large which were hewn out of a, a surface and then drug up and put in place. There was no noise there as they're making all these objects, this, this silent project until it was finally finished seven years later. It... Uh, We've looked at some aspects in great detail, others not as much. But really, what a great accomplishment. I mean, there is a great sigh of relief uh, when you finish a job. There's a great sigh of relief when you finish a job that particularly you've been on a long time, that you've had a lot of headaches with. Um, you know, finishing a, a doctorate dissertation, a long project, a season of gardening and waiting for another season to begin, a, a long novel, a long journey, finally finding and resting your way home. And, and here, this is a great accomplishment. This is one of the, the great accomplishments. But I want us to be able to remember this, because this is an important part in a backdrop of all of the pages of Scripture in First Kings and Second Kings. This is an important backdrop as we read through these stories. That here, in the background, is an enormous structure of God's promises, His fulfillment of those promises. These great pillars, this big wall, these brazen altars, these basins, these treasuries that are filled with the wealth of David which are dedicated for the ongoing process of set apart for the Lord to be able to worship the Lord. And this is the backdrop in all that we see. We can't just put this aside and just say, well, that's done. Let's not think about it anymore. It's very important as we see the kings that come, the kings who sit on that throne and sleep in Solomon's house that he builds. 
We see the king's relationship to this house, the king's relationship to the Lord who dwells in this house. Imagine a grand celebration in ancient Israel where the people are rejoicing in the fulfillment of God's promises. King Solomon had accomplished the momentous feat of building this magnificent temple, a place where the promises of God come to physically dwell, the presence of God dwelling in the midst of his people in the promised land. The nation that that reaches one of these great heights, basking in the glory of God. The land in which they stand is a land in which was promised to Abraham centuries before. Generations ago, this land that is flowing with milk and honey is now theirs. They live in it. They dwell in it. A land of blessings, a land of abundance. Not merely just living in the land, but a part of it is living in the land that God may be able to come dwell in the land with them in a permanent structure, not in a tent that moves. That they might be able to worship in the same place. This temple is a a testimony to God's faithfulness to be able to carry out His promise. A pinnacle of, of Israel's accomplishments and heights. They will gather to be able to witness the splendor of the temple. Finally, these promises are true. This fulfillment is is in grasp. The son of David sits on the throne, ruling in wisdom and righteousness. Peace surrounds all the nations around. Gone are the days where everyone is going into battle to fight against other nations. There's no mention of the Philistines. There's no mention of anyone trying to come and attack them. Peace surrounds them. This great height in history of Israel. And while this nation revels in this moment of triumph, we need to understand the wisest of them recognized their need for humility and dependence upon God. They, I think, understand the temporal nature. And they cannot really compare to these eternal promises God has in store. This day is like the day of a young married couple. They're not sure what is to come, unsure of what challenges lie ahead. The problem of sin which lies within each of them. The pressures that will come upon themselves and their marriage. This moment, as we'll see in chapter 8, is a great and glorious time in the nation of Israel. One of the greatest. To celebrate. But for us, as we think about not merely this moment, but what is to come. There's a subtle reminder that this is merely just temporary. It's good, it's not great. It's not eternal. Here they they celebrate the fulfillment of the promises, but they don't necessarily understand the full grasp of God's redemptive plan. We need to remember this as the foundation of the book of Kings. 
that the temple plays an important character, a part. Now, I don't know what to call it. But it's the parameter between the relationship of the king and his people, the king and the king, Yahweh. But in all of this, this temple, as magnificent as it is, is merely just a foreshadowing of something greater to come. The promises are not fulfilled in this time. The promises are fulfilled in Christ. He is our yes and amen. When Christ comes down to dwell tabernacle amongst his people, the true temple not built with hands, but he will reside in the hearts of those who believe in him. Jesus, the true son of David, the, the, the son of God, will establish his eternal kingdom, kingdom of grace, mercy, and salvation. That we need to be reminded of this, that we not put our hope and our trust in things that are temporal, but in Christ who is eternal. This is Peter's exact point in chapter 1. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That we put our hope not in the things that are passing, the things that are fading, the things that are perishing, but we put our faith and our trust in Christ, which is kept in heaven for us. A glorious thing as we see this, we know what is coming, but it's always good to be able to read these passages not knowing. Then when it finally comes, we understand why people are so mournful and why they doubt. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His Glory and His Gospel.